You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, I got to do some bad news, though. Oh, no. At the top of the show here. And actually, as I say this to the listening audience, you are hearing it for the first time. I'm dying, aren't live. I? Live. Yes. I have if cancer. Your prognosis does not look good, sir. Well, I'm glad that I could find out like this. You've been looking a little peaked lately, so we just decided to run some tests, and we thought it was probably nothing, but no, I'm sorry. You don't have much time. Oh, well, I had a good run. I don't know that I would say that. I had a decent run. Ben, today as we record this, it's uh, Monday. What is it? May 2nd? Sure. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. It's a beautiful day it here is. in Missoula, Montana. A real Chamber of Commerce afternoon. Tomorrow morning, Tuesday, May 3rd, I'm flying to Florida with my family, and I will not return until the following Tuesday evening. So, I guess we will need to discuss this off-air, whether or not we want to record the co Event podcast on Wednesday next week. Oh, you want to discuss it off-air? You chose to break the news to me on-air. I just I wanted to get your, uh, your real reaction. Okay. Which I can tell from your facial expression that you're already planning what to do with that Monday afternoon off. Uh, get a new co-host in here is what I'm planning to do. Yeah, and then teach him how to make a podcast, and you guys will be in business. Well, that'll be my main criteria for selecting a co-host will be if he knows how to make a podcast. Does anybody know how to make a podcast out there? So, yeah, we need to decide what we want to do. Uh, kind of ain't shit going on. I mean, we could, this week we're leading up to uh, UFC on Fox, Arlovsky Rotterdam. versus Overeem. Is yeah, that what's there you happening? go. Okay, and there's uh, Bigfoot is fighting Stefan Struve on that same card. Well, and then next weekend you're going to have uh, UFC 198. Okay. So maybe we better, maybe we'll figure out what to do then. Uh, but yeah, so we'll be, uh, we're taking that 5.20 a.m. flight out of Missoula. With, with so, two small children, huh? Yeah. So that'll All be, the way to Florida. That'll be fun. Yes. We're going to spend uh, a good part of the day in Minneapolis, it seems. And then. You uh, mean the Minneapolis airport? Yes. The Minneapolis That's what you airport. Mean? Are there other parts of Minneapolis? <laughs> I have never seen them. Uh, and then, yeah, flying down to Florida to uh, have some quote-unquote family vacation. Hot tip for the uh, the traveler. The Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport actually has at least one uh, killer arcade with a lot of cool shit in there. Okay. I'll check that out when I'm yeah. not at the uh, play areas. Yeah. The oversized planes and the... The, the coin-operated buses that shake back and forth and whatnot. There you go. Where I assume I will spend most of my layover. Ben, we're doing all questions considered this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast because hashtag almost nothing going on. Homo, hashtag ain't really shit going on, right? Hashtag only some shit going only on. Only some shit going on. Uh, and as we start to work through these, the, the listening audience at home will will uh, begin to understand that we got zero questions about this week's uh, UFC on Fox or FS1 event, so that that tells you where the, the attentions of the listening audience lie. Wow. So, I mean, at least we, we have our finger on the pulse of the people. 
We know what oh, they yeah. want. We've got advanced metrics up in here. <laughs> yes. First question this week comes to us from our pal, the Cheeseburger Walrus. I'm so pleased that the Cheeseburger Walrus is becoming just a regular addition to any, any emails we get. He writes, it's the center of this spring's tough season, so I figured I'd show it some love. Do you center notice? with the R-E. Yeah. So, so a clue as to the Cheeseburger Walrus's identity. We're starting to put together a dossier. Uh, <laughs> Gadella versus Joanna Champion 2. They've cursed at the pressers, apparently brawled on the set, and seem to have genuine dislike for one another. Thoughts overall on the rivalry and which one of these boss-ass bitches walks away with the strawway title come July? Wow, if you want to... Complain about the use of the phrase boss-ass bitches in this respect. You can direct those complaints to the cheeseburger walrus. We're just reading. Either Canada or the UK, I think. We're just reading these things uh, as written. Yeah. um, I'm told that this makes for an interesting season of The Ultimate Fighter. That's what I hear. That's what the people tell me on social media. Uh, I'm not going to watch it because I guess, for one thing, I don't feel like I need to see Joanna Champion and Claudia Gedalia arguing to be interested in that fight and i know they're not gonna we're not gonna see them fight on the show so why am i watching yeah uh you know i just moved back into my regular house from the rental with the broken doorbell where we had been recording the ultimate or the uh the co-main event podcast for the last what 10 months or whatever uh and i plugged back in my television i hooked back up the uh, dish network service that i have there and realized i still had a a timer a recording timer set for the ultimate fighter uh, and it had begun to record the first episode. And I thought, hey, you know what? Joanna Yedjechik and Claudia Gadella, maybe I'll check this out. Uh, I didn't make it through the commercial break before I thought better of it. I didn't even get to when Tough started before I was like, you know what? I'm actually not going to watch this. I'm going to watch <laughs> something else. Uh, so I'm sure they're doing great things over there. They're scheduled to fight on July 8th at the Ultimate Fighter Season 23 finale, which, of course, is part of the Gay Law International Fight Week leading up to UFC 200. Uh, they fought once before in December of 2014, and as I think we all know, Joanna Yajajic won a split decision over Claudia Gadella. Uh, Gadella's fought only one time since then. She beat Jessica Aguilar at UFC 190. Uh, but I think people are expecting Yajajic to get um, the stiffest test of her championship reign to this point, I guess you would say, although I don't know that that's necessarily anything to really write home about. Uh, I guess, and I'm, I'm just going to say I base this on absolutely nothing. I expect Joanna Yedjechik to once again walk away with the victory. Yeah, but I do think that that's going to be a close fight, especially over five rounds. I mean, it was a close fight the first time they met, uh, and I think you put those two together in the cage for five rounds, I, I see them probably going the full five rounds uh, and could very well end up being another coin flip type situation. I kind of wonder who the the bitter rivalry nature of the thing favors. Uh, if, because something tells me that Yuani and Jaychik is perfectly comfortable with starting a whole bunch of shit with her opponent, making it feel really heated and personal, and then being able to be pretty cool in the fight itself and not, not letting any of that get to her. And I don't know the same yet about Claudia Gadelia, if she's capable of doing that. So, you know, that is one interesting thing that, a wrinkle that the whole tough experience could throw in there. Yeah, yeah, Jacek, uh, pretty cool customer, as we've seen throughout her uh, her reign as as the UFC Women's Strawweight Champion, even though she has been that for just a little bit over a year. Uh, but you're right, I think. It seems like these, uh, well, as we've seen from her in the past, when she likes to bring gifts to the weigh-ins, uh, I don't know if you want to call them mind games, but they seem to come fairly naturally to her. 
Uh, I don't know whether or not the same is true or not of Claudia, Claudia Gadella. So I guess we'll find out. Uh, let's let's skip down here a little bit on the list. You're going to start skipping around now? Well, you don't want to read too – you know, you don't want to go right from a Joanna Champion question to a Chris Cyborg question. Why you not? Don't, you don't want to read two women's MMA questions in a row. You want wow. to mix them up. Whoa. Okay. You want to, you want to throw mix, – mix other stuff in there. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> You've got a okay. problem with that? Yeah. I think you just came out of the closet once again as a sexist pig. You don't want not too much women's MMA talk on the co-main event podcast. Well, if we spend Manly all man, the ben women's Fultz MMA won't have it. talk right now, then the, we won't have any of it later on. These are just in order of how we receive them. That's a bad order. That's no way to order things. Uh, all right, well, next time I'm curious you, about, you can order them next I'm, time. I'm curious about this one from John Favreau. I assume film director John Favreau. Uh after Conor McGregor's antics this past week, including bashing of UFC 200 without him, do you think the UFC will be so eager to dump the same marketing on his fights? He's the biggest draw, but if you remember, he got arguably the biggest push ever from the UFC. Discourse this shit, please. I admit I have wondered about this one myself, which is why I wanted to jump in and talk about film director John Favreau's question, because... Isn't that what we used to say about Conor McGregor before we were totally sold on his abilities and we were all thinking, well, wait until he meets an American wrestler who will dump him on his head. Uh, and we said the UFC is giving him more favorable matchups and giving him just an enormous hype job considering that he's fighting Dennis Seaver and stuff like that. Uh, and now he's in this kind of public head-to-head -head clash with the UFC. It seems like he's taking it up a notch on uh, social media. Uh, throwing Twitter num or throwing pay-per-view numbers out there on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. And if the UFC really is mad at him and wants to put him back in his place, and if the UFC is willing to basically cost itself a little money in order to win that battle, as it kind of seems so far like maybe it is, is it willing to take that a step further and just say, you know what, we're going to treat this like it's a UFC on fuel event circa 2009 or whatever? Yeah, I think that's the most interesting question uh, surrounding what is a pretty uninteresting contract dispute between the UFC and Conor McGregor and becomes less and less interesting by the day. Uh, and Conor McGregor, by the way, although I guess kind of interesting today that, that he started hinting around actual pay-per-view numbers, uh, but he had begun to look just kind of more and more ineffectual uh, the the longer this thing goes on and the more he... he sends out pictures of his Reebok sneakers and whatnot. Uh, the most interesting question, though, is what their relationship is going to be like when he comes back, because all along, Dana White has professed that their relationship is fine and stop asking us about it, you weirdos, has kind of been the company line. Uh, Conor McGregor has not been quite so cool, I guess you would say, or politically correct, political. He hasn't really given the political answers, not that he's given too many answers in this thing, period. Uh, but it does make you wonder what the what their relationship is going to be. I mean, if and when this thing gets sorted out, I guess we all kind of assume that it will, and he will be back fighting in the UFC at some point. Uh, but even before this particular contact contract holdout, there had been uh, evidence, I guess, to suggest that the relationship between Conor McGregor and the UFC in general, and Dana White in particular, had begun to sour a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see. I mean, I guess conventional wisdom up to this point had said that they would all be willing to bury the hatchet because there would be too much money to be made, uh, on everybody's, you know, part. Everybody was standing to make too much money. Uh, however, I think in this case, maybe Conor McGregor is underestimating the UFC's ability to take a, a financially 
to take a financial hit to make a point, I guess you could say, and, and maybe underestimating how stubborn these people that own this fight company uh, really are. Uh, so, so if, and when this thing gets sorted out, I think it will be interesting to see how he's treated, how things go moving forward. Because in the past, when the UFC has gotten into these kind of, uh, tiffs with other fighters, uh, it seemed like they've wanted to send a message upon that person's return. Yeah. I don't know whether or not they'll do that with Conor McGregor, a star that they, that they crafted with his help, uh, out of thin air, really. Well, and he still has your featherweight title. So, you know, you, you can maybe only do that to some extent. What I wonder too is, is Conor McGregor big enough at this point that you can't do that to him? I mean, you, you get to choose his opponent to some extent, uh, and, you know, you can choose how much effort you put into the marketing of it, but he's the guy being followed around by TMZ, and whenever he tweets, everybody in the MMA world is required to write a, an article on it. Is he to the point where he can do his own promotion so well? that the UFC could not really undersell it. It's an interesting question. He feels like one of the only people in the industry who could like basically quarterback his own fight show. Right? He seems to think he is. Like yeah. if, he, if he went over there to, to the fictional country of Ireland and McGregor promotions became more than a gag and he put on an actual fight show, uh, I have a feeling people would watch and I have a feeling that they would tune in on, on pay-per-view. I don't know in what numbers they would do that. And I think, you know, there are obviously, uh, a million questions that would surround the, the putting together and promoting of an event like that, not the least of which would be who the hell would Conor McGregor fight? Uh, and who would be on the undercard? And who would be on the undercard? Not Patty Houlihan, we know at this point. Well, hey, uh, maybe Pat, maybe Conor McGregor Promotions is willing to take a chance on a guy with a blood factor problem. Look the other way on the on the blood issue. Uh, but but yeah, it does feel like he has come as close to anyone to sort of being his own uh, niche industry, I guess you could say. Uh, and whether or not he would be willing to take it quite that far, I don't know. But, um, I mean, I would be more interested at that point than I am now in their little piss and match. Uh, if something, if it seemed like something real was going to happen, I, I would find that interesting. Are we just, just going to do another question? Sure. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go back to the top of the list. So I know what has been happening here. This question comes from Morgan Marks, who writes, Now that Chris Cyborg and the terrifying violence she delivers has been allowed into the UFC, will MMA fans pay attention to a non-Cyborg headlined Invicta event? The organization has always featured exciting fights, but in the Reebok, quote, excellent red era, the charisma of the Invicta FC roster stands out. You've got Tanya Evinger promising beatdowns as if she's a Las Diaz sibling, Livia Souza proclaiming herself, quote, the fucking strawweight Conor McGregor, and Angela Hill stepping right out of Street Fighter 2 Turbo with her weigh-in outfits. Uh, is a deep card topped by two title fights enough to make the likes of Chad log into FightPass.com? Parenthetically, no. Uh, or was Invicta solely the cyborg show for most fans? Ben, why don't you answer this since, uh, since you are the one who watches independent mixed martial arts events on the FightPass.com? You know, I feel refreshed coming back to the topic of women's MMA. Well, we didn't want to. I didn't want to get you over your Conor, women's MMA quota with Conor McGregor uh, before they became such a distraction it's that you, really, you were unable to continue the show. Really, just vibrantly mixed together. I like it. It's like I'm doing a show with Don Draper <laughs> in the fifties. Uh, did people think of Invicta as the cyborg show? I don't think so, because even I, a guy who doesn't have the FightPass.com. Uh, and doesn't tune in to small time MMA events unless they are on access fights and my children are asleep and my wife is out of town or out of, out of the house. Uh, I never thought of it that way. Like I, if anything, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, one of the bigger independent organizations just because, uh, you know, previous to very recent times, it had the market cornered on on uh, women's MMA talent Yeah, in a lot of ways. Well, and I also felt like when Cyborg fought for Invicta, uh, the appeal could only be so great because there was nobody really for her to fight. And I still don't think there's too many people for her to fight. I mean, she's going to go over the UFC, and already the story is nobody wanted to fight Cyborg. Or at least that's the narrative that, that we're being fed there. So I don't know how much uh, of a loss that it truly is for Invicta. And I think that Invicta is more well-positioned than most organizations to move past losing a, a big-name fighter, if only because... That's pretty much been the story the entire time Invicta has ex- existed. Um, it's kind of had to cozy up with the UFC and get used to just losing one fighter after another. Like in- Invicta builds them up and the UFC snatches them away. And that's happened over and over and over again. Uh, and if you're, if you're Invicta and you're not used to that by now, then you're going to be in trouble. But I think that they do a pretty good job over there at Invicta of, um, just rolling with that, finding the next people to focus on. And uh, the the people who watch all the Invicta cards on the FightPass.com, I don't I don't believe too many of you can really be there solely for any one fighter. Yeah, well, it felt to me like it was always kind of, uh, and, and I you know this is not the the right way to phrase it, but like I always felt like Alexa Grasso got more attention than Chris Cyborg because it always kind of seemed like she had been tabbed as the the next big thing that the UFC would try to nab and bring into the fold. And, and, you know, all along the way, we had been led to believe that, that relations with Chris Cyborg were not that sunny. And, and we didn't really know if she was ever going to make her octagon debut, even though the, the company had her under some kind of bizarro UFC fight contract, uh, dating back at least a year or so. Uh, so the, the news that Chris Cyborg is, is coming to the UFC. I don't know, man, at least in my mind, I didn't, necessarily frame that and how that affects Invicta because I feel like they've got enough stuff going on over there that they're not really going to be you know it's not going to be like they're shutting the lights off yeah because the cyborg's gone by the way Tanya Evinger promising beatdowns as if she's a lost Diaz sibling yeah no that I I love me some Tanya Evinger over there uh, especially because you love her just showing up in, in her post-fight interview um, admitting to vomiting in the corner and saying how, how gross it was and you're like, you know what? This is a this is a fighter I can get behind. This is somebody who's who you trying to you trying to join Ben Folks' team? That's a good way to do it. What are we doing next? It's your turn. Okay. So I assume you will skip around until you find a masculine question to ask. <laughs> uh okay. Um I'm gonna ask this one, since this kind of goes back to the Conor McGregor are you bigger are you bigger than the game question from Matt Webb who warns us right off the bat, my question is a hard one. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know that I'm up for it. Well, get ready. Who makes the stars, asked Matt Webb. As members of the media, y'all have the opportunity to turn fans onto fighters at will. Joe Rogan's Endless Talk About Mighty Mouse on his podcast has made me a Mighty Mouse diehard. Chad's story on Mighty Mouse via Bleacher Report, shameless plug, also adds fuel to the fire. Fire. I have never really cared about Ben Rothwell until hearing the Ben Folks talk about him on this very podcast. Y'all say the UFC gives the push, but you guys are also the reason fans tune in to certain fighters. What say you, MMA media? Are you guys indeed the secret creators of MMA story? lines and superstars um i think it depends largely on the actual fighter to be honest with you i think it's such a personality driven sport that 
you know, I don't, I don't think the UFC is as, as cagey and as good at making stars as it thinks it is out of thin air. And I don't necessarily think the MMA media is what puts a fighter over the top for stardom. Although I think, you know, having the UFC in your corner and ha- and being a person that the MMA media likes to talk to can only help you, I think. But at the same time, like you talk about Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. Like a lot of people in the MMA media, myself included, are pretty big Demetrius Johnson fans. Uh, and the guy continues to be just dead on arrival on pay-per-view. So, uh, you know, it, the he's the UFC flyweight champion, maybe the top pound for pound fighter in the world. He's two fights away from breaking Anderson Silva's record for uh consecutive UFC title defense or two fights away from tying it, I believe. Uh, and, and yet it doesn't seem like he plays that well to uh, the UFC's casual audience. Um, and whereas, you know, the UFC gets a guy like Conor McGregor uh, and it's able to kind of craft him into a huge, into a huge star. But I think, owing mostly to his own personality. Like, I don't, you couldn't just do that to anyone. You couldn't just find a dude on the street and be like, we're going to turn this guy into the next Conor McGregor. Like, uh, the lion's share of it, I think, depends on the savvy and charisma of the particular fighter. Yeah. Uh, can you recall an instance where of the UFC trying to seize on somebody and say, we think this person's a star and it not working? Because even when it sometimes doesn't work out in the cage, as in Sage Northcutt, it still seems like the the stardom factor uh, comes out on, on their side. Either they're good at choosing or their machine is more powerful than we're giving it credit for. Cause I can't recall too many times when the UFC had clearly decided, okay, we're all in behind this person and they, they didn't become a star in some sense. I mean, look at Sage Northcutt, Paige Van Zandt, even when they're not winning fights, they still, you know, their careers seem to be improving. Yeah, I mean, I think the jury is still out on those people. You know, Paige Van Zandt is obviously getting paid a boatload of money and getting a ton of of mainstream exposure by being on Dancing with the Stars. Sage Northcutt is booked on UFC 200 or something against some guy who's like eight and three uh, in in MMA and lost his his UFC debut by split decision. Although he is noted on Northcutt's Wikipedia page as a Spanish submission specialist. Okay. So we've got that to go on. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I would say maybe a guy like CM Punk so far. Seems like the, uh, an outlier in that the UFC, if at least if you believe his story about it, went out and and nabbed him out of retirement from professional wrestling and wanted him to basically offered him a contract to come in and train for a fight. And then they would they said they would get him a fight. And obviously he's a little long in the tooth in his late 30s, has never really been involved in a competitive sport before. Uh, he's been injured a couple of times and they've had to put off his debut. At this point, I don't know how much like mainstream interest there's going to be. When that guy finally shows up to fight some, what, two, maybe more than two years removed from his departure from professional wrestling. Uh, you know, I think when they first nabbed him, uh, it was a different time in MMA and we all thought, oh, a pro wrestler, he's going to bring this, this crossover audience. Now I, I don't necessarily know that that's true. Maybe professional wrestling fans will still tune in to watch him, but man, it feels like a long time since he has done anything to, to make himself relevant in that way. So, but again, like he is such an outlier. Like he's kind of the first time we've ever seen the UFC do that before. Well, yeah, and also that, for all we know, he may never, ever fight. That is another possibility. Another uh, and, really and good possibility. The last thing I would say on this is the the theory that the MMA media are the secret creators of MMA storylines and superstars is... Hashtag kingmakers. For one thing, we tend to cater to a much smaller audience because you have to be a pretty hardcore UFC and MMA fan to be reading about it on the internet. I think I don't I don't know that there's 
you know, I think there's a bunch of people who watch the sport and would c consider themselves fans who never read a single word of it on the internet unless it's to look up what time the fight starts, uh, something like that. So, um, look at a guy like Aljamain Sterling, I think is one where the MMA media really, we were intrigued by what was going on there with him and his free agency thing and the way the USC seemed to be kind of trying to bury him, uh, on fight pass and not really doing anything to promote the guy. And a lot of us jumped on that and kind of told that story in different ways. And still, you know, whose, whose career would you rather have right now? Aljamain Sterling's or Sage Northcutt's? I mean, Aljamain Sterling, a better, more accomplished fighter, uh, from everything we've seen. Yet still, I think if you're looking to trade paychecks with somebody and looking at their future, you know, career prospects, you'd have to admit that the USC had decided Sage Northcutt was a star and Aljamain Sterling wasn't, and that's how it's proceeded. Okay, back to the actual list. The next question comes from... You love this damn list. Bitch of the podcast, Ari Laveau. He writes, Bitches, I'm getting kind of tired of the widespread use of misogyny that is tolerated in MMA pre-fight trash talk. Fortunately, we don't hear fighters calling each other bad words like fag. In fact, Joanna Champion recently got into some hot water for promising to send Claudia Gadella, quote, back to the jungle, as if mentioning the type of bioregion from which a person hails as some kind of underhanded racial slur. So would you please be good little bitches and discuss this shit for daddy, and then go back to your honky mountains. Wow. So, uh... I see what he's up to yeah, here. I get and you know it. what? I second this emotion from Ari Laveau. I think it's kind of disappointing how, uh, you know, one of the go-to moves in MMA trash talk, even today in 2016, is basically for two men to call each other women is yes. kind of what it boils down to. I was disappointed when, when Conor McGregor wrote about, uh, female reporters, quote unquote, tight little ass or little tight ass, as he referred to it in his Facebook statement after his so-called retirement. Uh, I was kind of disappointed, even in all Jermaine Sterling referring to Brian Caraway as, right. as Mr. Misha Tate, uh, in their trash talk. It just seems like it's so easy and trite to go to that, that, insult which i don't even know if i can figure out why it's an insult except to fall back on ben folk style gender tropes uh which which fell out of fashion like 30 years ago you love this idea of me as a 1950s uh misogynist don't you i mean i don't even really, really attach to, to it it just like makes itself happen okay in front of me I, i'm just party to it it's not like i created it you know what because I've thought about this also a lot, and the thing that's really amazing to me about it is that MMA is the rare sport where – the rare pro sport where the the same guys who are doing this who are saying like, all right, I know how I will degrade and insult my opponent is by comparing him to a woman. A lot of them, if not most of them, train in the same gyms with women and will compete on fight cards where there are women fighters. And you just, like, in the NFL, at least they would have the argument of, like, well, hey, I work around all men. I, see, I only see men when I come to practice, when I go to the games. It's just a totally male-dominated environment, and maybe I got, like, out of touch that way. MMA fighters don't even have that excuse. Like, they, this is a sport where you, know, you look around and you see uh, just equally tough fighters who are women and usually who have been doing it for way less money just because they really, really want to do it. 
uh, for a long, long time. So you'd think that maybe they would get the message there that it's not really a cool insult uh, to compare your opponent to, you know, basically one of your teammates. Um, but I, I also think that our our culture is moving in the right direction on some of this stuff slowly. And MMA, as we've seen, and just kind of sports in general in a lot of ways, um, are often the last to move on some of this stuff. Like, he, Ari Lovo mentions that we don't hear guys, you know, at least they're not calling each other fag, you know, except for when they are. Yeah. And it's only recently, like in the past few years, that we've gotten to a point when there's enough of a, a social consciousness among MMA fans to be like, oh, wait, don't do that. I mean, yeah. hey, you go out there and knee the guy in the face, you know. Talk all kinds of trash about how you're gonna, you know, punch a hole in his head and everything, but don't call him a fag. What what's wrong with you? And remember, they kind of had to to make a point of making that kind of of trash talk go away for the simple reason that dudes did it so much. Like Michael Bisping yeah. was kind of one of the main, uh, un un you know unbeknownst to him or like not he unconsciously became a catalyst for this change just because. Uh, he would call someone a homophobic slur like almost every time to the point that like I think he and Dana White kind of uh, must have had a backstage talk about it. And, and then there were a couple of press conferences where they let us know like wink, wink, Michael was not going to be saying that this time. So like uh, it's it's awesome to make that change. But I also feel like we need to point out that, that the change was made because there were so many violations of that and that particular uh faux pas is is literally a thing that has bit Dana White in the ass before. So maybe that is a, uh, you know, a, a piece of it that he feels more personally connected to because he knows that he has gotten in trouble for that very thing in the past. Um, as a caveat, though, can, can I say one thing that I feel like I just have to say, say it. for for the sake of truth? It was it. super funny when John Jones said, are you still there, pussy? Like, <laughs> and I can't explain that other than other than to say. Something about the delivery of the line and and the wording of it just it was funny and I don't I mean yeah no you're right you have a point there so also can I can I tell an anecdote about my daughter who is three sure by all means we were pretending to be cats yesterday my wife and I and her were all pretending to be cats and she was talking a lot about pussy cats uh, and then like we went off and did something else and like ten minutes later we were getting ready to go out and run some errands and she came up to me and said. Are we ready to get going, pussies? And I was just, I had to like stone face it, but I was cracking up inside. I have to admit. Do you think you successfully stone faced it? Because I, I have some doubts. Uh, I think I did it enough that a three-year-old would not notice or would not put it together that, that I was cracking up about that particular thing. I've only recently realized that my three-year-old daughter is getting to the point where you can't just say whatever you want anymore. Yeah. Uh, and she's just kind of picking stuff out of, out of the, the atmosphere. Uh, and I'm kind of realizing maybe gone are the days of being able to drive around with her in the car listening to some old school NWA. My daughter sings along with songs in the car and says the swears, but has not yet connected that those words to other situations. She has not yet dropped an, dropped an F-bomb, but she we'll says the words coming. when she's yeah. singing along. So it's going to happen eventually. Um. All right. I'm going to go down the list and cherry pick one that I like here. Uh, this one I'm going to read because it references a story that I wrote, uh, from Sean Ames, um, writes, is it okay to feel uncomfortable with Connell, Connell Powers fighting? And if you're unfamiliar with the reference there, I had a story last week on 15 year old 
Missoula fighter Connell Powers, the son of a local MMA coach from the Dog Pound Fight Team, uh, and his fight a couple weeks ago against a 23-year-old man. Um, and he's seriously pursuing MMA at this point, even though he's 15. As a Missoula resident from 2004 to 2015, I saw him at many local fight cards, even being interviewed at one show. His voice had not yet dropped, and hearing Power say he'd rather pound out an opponent than look for a submission, then be told he sounded, quote, just like your daddy, was disconcerting. Fast forward to 2016, and it's obvious the kid has some skills and people around him who care. Still, I was at that show at the Osprey Stadium, and I heard the crack from Sky Folsom's back fist all the way up at concessions. If my kid took a flying knee from Folsom in practice, I would probably tell him college is more important than fighting and protect his young brain from itself. They are clearly a loving, tight-knit group. To my knowledge, I've never heard of a dog pound guy in legal trouble around the community. Well, you, you might not have been listening closely enough. Uh, as an editorial note there. Will Connell Powers potentially end up like Jordan Meehan? Meehan was, Meehan started very young by his father, also a very, also a fighter and coach. He rose up through the ranks quickly, had a ton of early fights, and ended up retiring young because of accumulated damage. Your thoughts, Chad? I'm glad we can talk about this now because after you went up to Great Falls, uh, another town in Montana, to watch Connell Powers' uh, MMA debut, I asked what, last week or two weeks ago if we could talk about it on the show, and you said no because your precious story was too important. That's right. You wanted to keep it a secret. Uh, so I'm glad that we can talk to about this now because it sounded to me, I really wished I could have gone, but I was unable to go with you. And uh, to, just to hear your report afterwards, it sounded like this show up there in Great Falls, which if you're not from this area, uh, is not regarded as like the happiest place in the world to begin with, like the most pleasant place in the world. Uh, but just to hear your account of this fight show made it seem like the most depressing thing in the world. Uh, so I'm glad that now we can, we can talk about Connell Powers going up there, uh, and, and putting a 23 year old man on a stretcher and, and, uh, what they would call in the uh, professional wrestling world a stretcher job. Uh, <laughs> this, this guy gets stretchered out of there, although unfortunately in, in MMA, it was not, uh, not premeditated that that was going to happen that way. Yeah, and it sounded like the guy was all right. I talked to the guy afterwards, uh, and he said he had a, a concussion, and it seemed like it was largely precautionary that they took him out of there on a stretcher. And we've been at, at local MMA shows in Missoula where dudes have been taken out on stretchers before too. And so uh, the thing – it's weird because I felt conflicted about it as I was hearing about it and writing about it and putting together the story because – on one hand, you know, 15 does seem really young for a sport with so much brain trauma. Your brain is still developing at that point. Um, even if you're really good and are, are doing it pretty safe, you're going to get hit in the head some. And then at the same time, I think of, you know, when I was 15 playing high school football and playing football all through high school, and I, I feel like in the relatively short time since when I played high school football, we learned a lot more about brain stuff. And if, you know, I think I've said before that I'm kind of, in a way, I'm kind of glad that I, I don't have a son, so I don't think I'll have to face the question of, can I play high school football? Because I think it would be a tough one. Like, after I played, I would have said, yeah, it's a great experience. It's going to teach you a lot of great lessons and uh, great stuff about work ethic and all the other stuff. And now, uh, it would be really tough to to feel quite so good about it. And so, but I don't know. I mean, it's... It's tough to to say like, hey, you can be into this sport, but not that other sport. You know, if we're going to start like Greg Jackson once told me when I asked him about, you know, are you ever conflicted about your involvement in this sport that is leaving a lot of broken bodies down the line? And he had 
you know, I expected him to struggle with the question a little more. And he had like just a kind of reflex of immediately like, no, you know, I know it's dangerous. I know it's going to like shorten all of our lives. Um, but I think it's worth it. I think the trade-off is worth it to be doing something that you really love. And I don't think, I think his phrase was, I don't think we should nerf the world, um, that we need to accept that this is part of it. And I can kind of see both sides of that. Um, and it's the, I feel the same way about, you know, 15 year old fighting. Yeah, I feel the same way. I don't think that I have the magic bullet answer and I don't really even fully know, you know, with, you know, in a, in a, an open and shut way what my own opinion is because I do see both sides of it. On, on one hand, you certainly understand why a lot of people would be uncomfortable with the idea of a 15 year old boy engaging in a, in an, an MMA fight, uh, especially when you see Connell Powers and he looks like a child, like he looks like such a small kid. Uh, but at the same time, I also remember when I used to work at the local newspaper, like going back years and years now, typing in Connell Powers, name in little guy wrestling when he was a kid, uh, just schooling everybody, kicking everybody's ass, frankly. And so you, you get to this weird crux where it's like, I don't know if it's safe that he should be out there fighting other people. But I also think because of who his dad is like a longtime MMA coach in, in Missoula and himself, uh, a, a fighter at one time in his life because of who his dad is like he could be really good at at MMA fighting so I see the the divide there like I understand how you know you might not be into it but I also see how that could be appealing to him and and to his dad and I think you know kind of one of the interesting questions that I thought your story got to was like whether or not he really had a choice about whether or not he was going to do that. And of course his, his father, Matt Powers says, yeah, he never really pushed him into it, but you know, Connell Powers was raised, uh, in an environment where like that was just the norm. And so I do think it's an interesting question to, to whether or not he, he made that choice consciously, or it was just like, you know, getting into the family business like so many people do. Uh, but it's not a, it's not a question of right and wrong that I have an answer to. Yeah. Well, you know, I would say having kids myself has, uh, made me think differently about the question of, you know, pushing your kids into activities. Um, at least my experience so far in fatherhood has been that you can't really successfully push them into doing much. Um, like even just like trying to, to play with my oldest daughter out front and just being like, all right, hey, I'm going to throw this ball to you. You catch it and throw it back. And she's like, no, I'm pretending to be a frog. And you're like, all right, well, that seems like that's just kind of how that's going to go. Like not really that interested in uh, playing ball-related sports, really interested in, in just like elaborate pretend games, stuff like that. And it makes me think like, yeah, I don't see how I could possibly like push her into soccer or some shit if I wanted to. Like it just doesn't seem like it would work, but apparently people do it. Next question this week comes to us from John Oaks. He writes, this week the UFC booked Valerie Letourneau versus Joanne Calderwood in the first ever women's flyweight fight in the organization, while noting that this is not the beginning of a new division. We've wanted for a long time when the women's side of the UFC would fill out into new divisions. Obviously the UFC isn't putting a belt on the line here, but maybe it should have. Joanne has quite a fan following and Valerie Letourneau ranks pretty high on the Gina Carano index. Uh, which, you know, the UFC pays close attention to. Both women are good enough fighters to legitimately hold the strap at 125, and for Valerie, that cut to 115 couldn't have been healthy. It seems like the right time 
for women's flyweights to emerge. Fans are invested in the established divisions now. Joanna Champion and Misha Tate are stars, not to mention the many other emerging talents uh, looking to take their belts. Uh, is fear of draining the strawweight and bantamweight division still the main reason behind the UFC's hesitation? Does the entrance of Cyborg complicate the picture further? Uh, so yeah, the UFC is not is saying that this isn't the start of a flyweight division, uh, but this is the second fight, right? That they've booked at at a, a weight where they don't have a weight class right now. They they're doing the Chris Cyborg fight at at 140, uh, and now this one at at 125. Uh, I seem to recall. I could be wrong about this, but I thought that I have heard in the past. I don't know if anyone said it publicly, but when asked if the UFC would add another women's division, they have said that it would be 125. Is that is that accurate, or am I did I just make that up? I don't know. Breaking news. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um. I know that they they were concerned about draining the other divisions, and you could see why. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, if what we're doing here is just kind of a, you know, you realize there are a lot of good fights that you could make at 125 pounds, um, and the UFC just as a general philosophy seems to have gotten a little less hung up on divisions and rankings and titles and more on, like, let's create just interesting fights from one event to the next. And so maybe the thinking here is, well, if we do it on a case by case basis and, you know, not necessarily jump right into establishing a new division and having to crown a champion and, and uh, dealing with who can move into that division from other divisions. But when we see one that makes sense to do it, we go ahead and pull the trigger on it um, as kind of a test case just to see how that will go, you know, and, I think that's honestly not a bad idea. I can see uh, a lot of good coming out of that. Yeah, I think you're right. And the, from a surely pragmatic standpoint, that that seems to make a lot of sense and to fit into the uh, the matchmaking strategy that I think we see developing. In terms of adding another women's division, I've always thought I would personally be more interested in 140, just because you do have Cyborg and you could put the the strap on Cyborg and and. Uh, uh, or I mean, I'm sorry, 145 is what I meant. Uh, you could put the, the, the strap on Cyborg at 145. Uh, there are a lot of women who, who previously fought at 145. It seems like it would be pretty easy to, to cultivate a division there. But I also see the, uh, like the, the utility in adding 125 pounds just because you kind of split the difference between the two divisions that you already have. Uh, women fighters could come down from bantamweight or go up from strawweight. So, uh, like I said, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, I think that that makes sense. Yeah. Um, here's a question from uh, Callum Leslie who writes, 18 months ago, I consumed all the MMA content I could get my hands on as an aspiring MMA journalist, in parentheticals, who interviewed Chad once upon a time and asked him a fucking awful question about Master Tweet Theater. I don't remember it. Well, damn it, I was going to ask to hear more about that. I could find reasons to get excited about the most mediocre of card. Now, I'll be honest, I only watch the stuff I've read about being interesting beforehand, but I still never miss a CME. Does that make me crazy? And a completely unrelated question on a real MMA topic, Dana White apparently told an audience of fellow capitalist scumbags that keeping fighter wages low keeps fighters quote-unquote hungry. Do you think he meant this literally? Ha <laughs> uh, ha Yeah, no, Callum Leslie is a good dude. He's an esports reporter now. That's right. I still follow him on Twitter, uh, and I enjoy it. Because he's constantly tweeting about shit that I have no fucking idea what he's talking about, but I just like to know that it's out there. <laughs> okay. I like to read his tweets and be like, oh, okay, that's what's happening in Hearthstone this week, which I don't know what that is, but more power to everybody did who you, does it. Did you make that up? Or is no, that a that's real a real thing. Okay. Hearthstone is, right. has something to do with esports. Maybe we'll get a, 
uh, a dossier now from from Callum Leslie to to uh, tell us what that is. I went on his podcast once when he was an MMA reporter. That's what he's talking about. But okay. I don't remember the master tweet theater question that he asked me. You know, I've actually heard from uh, a couple people, even a couple Missoula locals around here, that they're like, you know, I don't really watch much MMA anymore, but I always listen to your podcast. Yeah, it happens as like. Most of the people who listen to this show are MMA fans, but I, I hear from people more often than you would think that don't really watch MMA but but do listen to the podcast, and I must only conclude they got too much time on their hands, uh, and maybe they don't know about other podcasts, so we shouldn't. Let's, don't tell there them. There might be podcasts out there that dovetail with their interests, but we do not want them to find out about them. Right. Uh, as for the second part of the question, I, I saw this kind of floating around because apparently it was like a uh, – a video of Dana White speaking to a Stanford business school, I think it was. Did you see this? I saw the stories about it, but I haven't watched the actual video yet. Yeah, I don't know if if he actually uses – if he says keeps them hungry. Now, I don't think he meant it literally as in he wants them to be literally hungry for food, uh, even though many of them end up that way just to make weight in these terrible uh, drastic weight cuts a lot of guys make. But I do think – at one point he made – a point about boxing where he was like, you know, the worst thing about boxing is that a big super fight comes along and you get really excited and tell all your friends and you're thinking about it for weeks and fight night comes. You have all your buddies over to watch the pay-per-view and then the guys don't actually fight because they're already millionaires and they're going to be uh, even richer after this fight. So they don't want to get punched in the face and that if, if people – if basically that nobody would fight if they didn't really, really, really need the money <laughs> um, and – so let's keep them all as poor as possible. Yeah, but basically it was like we incentivize them to fight, but like you can only use money to incentivize people who don't have money. Um, and if they get too rich, then they won't really want to fight. And I admit that I was, I was struck by this because on one hand it seems kind of true. Most of the time also seems like something you probably shouldn't say out loud if you're the mega rich promoter of MMA fights and fighter pay is a huge issue in your industry. Um, but I don't know. I mean, can you say that he's wrong about that? I mean, we can see some notable examples where guys are, are, you know, they have a few million in the bank and are still out there doing it and everything. Um, but is it, is it bad for the UFC if fighters start getting so much money that they, like look at Ronda Rousey where she has other options, has some money and we haven't seen her lately. Uh, and may not see her for a little while yet. Uh, is is the UFC right, even if somehow evil, to think, all right, we need wages to be low just so people will keep showing up and fighting hard? No. No what? They're not right. Okay. Uh, in fact, that's not even related. That's bullshit. I don't understand why that would be a, a conversation that we need to have. Like, we don't need to have an in-depth conversation to hear a lot of reasons why the people in charge of the sport want to keep all the money. Okay. Like that's, there's, there's that's no true. mystery about why that <laughs> is. It's, uh, we understand why. And it happens in every walk of life in the world. And, and in terms of like, uh, how much fighters should get paid or how much or whether or not they're hungry or whatever. Uh, I don't even want to talk about it because it's ridiculous. And there's only one thing that matters in terms of how much fighters get paid. And that, that is how much money is there. Yes. How much money does the UFC take in and how much of it does the UFC keep as compared to how much of it it pays out to fighters, period, end of conversation, end thread? Well, no, okay. I agree. I'm not going to accept your end thread, by the way. I agree that uh, 
that you're right. The the question that we've always talked about when we, when we were both given one question that we could ask and make the UFC uh, owners answer honestly, and it was, what's the cut? That is the question uh, and that we are still looking for an answer to. Um, I also think that the UFC has really benefited in a way that, that boxing hasn't, um, by being able to, to, you know, they've also benefited by keeping the money, but they've benefited by having a lot of fighters who really can't afford to skip fights. And when they come to them and suggest these matchups or late notice fights to, to fill in on a card, uh, and the fighters, a lot of them, and I talked to a lot of fighters about this issue, like they get hurt sometimes with really bad injuries. And they're not even really focused on the the injury aspect of it. What they're focused is on, man, I'm kind of walking a tightrope with my finances as it is, and this really screws me up. So I really got to get back in there soon and fight. Uh, and it helps the UFC keep the machine moving. Yeah, but that's terrible, though. And I don't, you know, I'm not one of these people that is going to sit here and and say like we should deny fighters a living wage and or the rights that they deserve as athletes well, because it's not. better for me as a fan if they don't have those rights. I feel like that's selfish and it's not what I want in this sport. Like I would rather have Ronda Rousey make a shitload of money and then never fight again than to have Ronda Rousey stick around longer than she wants to. Yeah, that's no, just me. I, I obviously I think from a from a fan perspective and from anybody who actually cares about the sport and the people in it then you want them to be able to make as much money as they can, especially when you see what they actually go through to do this damn sport. Um, but I mean, the, like from a cold-hearted uh, capitalist billionaire perspective, like is it advantageous to have a workforce that depends on you so much for money? Of course it is. But we also don't have this conversation about coal miners because we all realize that it's bullshit to play to pay coal miners so little money that that like they can't take a sick day. Like, we know that's bullshit. The coal miners have a union? I believe they probably do. There you go. It's weird the way that happens. Whose turn is it to read one of these things? My Yours. turn or your turn? Your turn. Okay, this question comes from Kyle Campbell. He writes, with Ronda Rousey likely to return at the end of this year, she has three very lucrative opponents in Misha, Cyborg, and Holly. Providing Misha beats Amanda Nunez, do you think a fight with Misha is most likely of the three? Also, Misha has gotten a lot better since the last time she fought Ronda, and her confidence will be sky high, while Ronda still seems shaken mentally since her loss to Holly. Who do you think takes potential Rousey versus Tate? Three. Uh, I think Ronda Rousey is going to fight whoever has that belt when she comes back, personally, uh, because it seems like the UFC will be most interested in getting the gold back around the waist of, of the only star it seems interested in promoting at 135 pounds. As long as that, as long as she's agreeable to taking that fight. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with what you said before on a couple podcasts ago that you're not really worried about the order in which these fights happen. Cause it right. seems like they're just basically going to get into a round Robin where they're all going to fight anyway. Uh, I think if I'm Misha Tate, I want to fight Ronda Rousey as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, and I agree that Misha Tate has gotten a lot better and I've talked to her team about mistakes they felt like they made, that they felt like they trained, changed training camps right before that fight and then didn't really, Misha didn't really follow their game plan and instead was, you know, shooting for double leg takedowns that played right into Ronda Rousey's hands and that they feel like if they could go in there with a, you know, their regular program that they have now and Misha's much better at following their game plans that it would be a very different fight and maybe they're right. Um, but I still think that the that there's a, a talent gap, uh, there's an athletic talent gap between them, 
And the best hope for closing it is that Ronda Rousey is living a different kind of life now. And, you know, that that's not saying that that equals no chance. I think that gives you a, a pretty good chance, as we've seen before. That, that can really affect a fighter. Um, but if you ask me to pick Rousey versus Tate 3, I don't know. I think I'd still have to go with Ronda Rousey. Yeah, do you think that if the if that is the fight that emerges and Ronda Rousey returns and that's her first fight back, do you buy the notion that she'll be hurting for confidence when she walks in there against Misha Tate? That's like as long as you're going to put Rousey into a fight with one of the top women's bantamweights in the world and you're not going to have her give her a tune-up fight, uh it seems like you couldn't do much better for her than to give her someone she's already beaten twice. Like if I mean, I could see her having lingering questions in the back of her mind if she was going to fight Holly Holm because Holly Holm kicked her in the damn head the last time they fought. Uh, she has beaten Misha twice, and although, you know, up to the point that she lost to Holly Holm, Misha Tate certainly uh, gave Ronda Rousey the toughest fight of anyone. Uh, and by toughest, I guess I mean longest. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like, Rousey's pretty much handled her business two times against Misha Tate. So I would think... Uh, you know, and maybe reading too much into what we think we know about Ronda Rousey's mindset now that we've seen her lose once, it seems like she's the kind of person that's going to be, you know, that's not going to take any chances in terms of, of fighting someone she's already beat twice. I think she'll be up for that, and I think that she'll be confident. Yeah, well, and I think that uh, I, Misha Tate is not necessarily a threat to knock you out on the feet. Uh, her, her ground game is still the most threatening aspect of her game, and that's not uh, anything Ronda Rousey is probably worried about. So I think matchup-wise, yeah, if you were looking to build her confidence back up, that would probably be one of the fights you choose. And let me just say, like, uh, we, we've done this thing now in the in the public discourse where Ronda Rousey was unbeatable until she lost to Holly Holm, and now... And now we're like, oh, she was all hype and she would never beat Holly Holm in a rematch. Like, you probably got to pick Holly Holm in a rematch if you're a betting person. But I still don't think it's out of the question Ronda Rousey could beat any of these people. Like, I think it's foolhardy to say she would have no chance. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, question from Michael Hutchinson. So, Wait, is that the dude from NXS, Michael Hutchinson? I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. I'm not as familiar with in excess as you are. Move along. From Michael Hutchinson. So are you guys over the Diaz-McGregor thing? I feel like the past few weeks have made me care less about the rematch and the longer each side holds out, the more disappointed I am that McGregor isn't fighting at all. Also, is McGregor acting a bit childish now? I was on his side to begin with, but I feel like at this point he should tuck his tail between his legs and accept that the rematch isn't happening and move on. This seems to be a uh, more and more prevalent viewpoint that he's maybe overplayed his hand and is acting a little bit childish now with how he's carrying it on with, with social media uh, and that the tide of public opinion might be turning a little bit against him now. Yeah, we've never seen really a high profile I keep calling it a contract holdout, but maybe I don't even know if that's what it is. Like, we've never really seen this before. We've never seen, like, a really uh, out-in-the-open labor dispute in in MMA. I mean, I guess Randy Couture, but that was before media was what it is now, and then, you know. Uh, and and so I guess it's not that surprising that, that at least a certain segment of fans would just want to get it over with and, and get back to the to the business of fighting. I said at the very beginning I didn't think Connor handled it that well. I'm going to stick to that. I still don't think he's handled it all that well. 
Uh, and I think that that like for people who are inclined to to uh, oppose what he's doing right now, I think he's he's played kind of into their hands. I would have liked to see a more thoughtful, thought out statement from him and some more like traditional media from him. Like I think he would have been well served uh, to go on the Fortnite and and kind of explain everything that that he wants and and what the problems are uh, in person rather than kind of give it to us piecemeal on Twitter, which like, I still feel like some of the the messages that he sent over the last, what, two weeks or whatever have, have uh, kind of backfired in a way. Well, the, to me, it seems like the reason it's backfiring is because the UFC is doing its best to make this story die and to make it all go away. And to the point where the UFC will act like we can't even understand why people are asking about it. Uh, even though it's clearly, something that's on everybody's minds and Conor McGregor seems like he's kind of going out of his way now to do the opposite, to not let this thing go. And I, I think you're just getting to a point of fatigue with it from most people. And the more you look like the guy who is still trying to revive this and like you're, you're tweeting just so people will write these stories that they do about your tweets, the more that seems like a little bit of desperation uh, that people will see that and they think, wait a minute, is this guy just trying too hard to keep his name in the news uh, since he he no longer has a fight? And that's not the way you want to look when you've already styled yourself as the, you know, Ric Flair on top of the game fighter that he has. Yeah, and I still think it was that it's strange that he apparently picked this battle over media appearances to be the one that he really went to the mattresses over. Uh, because I think it's easy for people to look at that and think that that alone is kind of petty, right? Like, I understand what a big commitment it must be for Conor McGregor to do that media, especially since, you know, he has to come from places like Ireland and or Iceland to to uh, to do these media engagements that, that he's been contracted for. But, but at the same time, like, I almost feel like he would have had better success and a better chance... Uh, at winning public appeal if, if he had, you know, taken on a larger issue, if he had said like, look, I, I have made a lot of money for my last couple of fights, but we're going to make more than ever in this next one. And here's how much of it, the guys who aren't fighting are going to keep. Like, I think it, it, you know, if he has access to that, uh, you have a better chance of, of winning people over, by exposing how lopsided the system is at the same time though, that's also kind of a nuclear option. I would think, yeah. although it seems like he's, he's tiptoeing toward that line now with, that's what with I thought. putting when, pay-per-view numbers on, on Twitter. That's what I thought when I saw him uh, talking about pay-per-view numbers on Twitter was if this was supposed to be a subtle reminder to the USC of, Hey, remember, I know where some figurative bodies are buried. Uh, I have some information uh, that I could put out there if I need to. And, I'm starting to give fewer fucks about that whole situation. I don't know. Maybe we're, we're reading too much into that, but that was my first thought when I saw that as well. This question comes from Benjamin Gabriel, who writes, This motherfucker is still a little surprised by John Jones's performance against OSP. Everyone seems to agree that he sure wasn't the fighter he used to be, and Daniel Cormier salivated over the chance to fight Russ T. Bones instead of the new and or improved version. I like that. See what he did there? Yeah. Then I considered the Holly Holm comments suggesting that she had held something back in her first few fights before unloading on Ronda Rousey. Any chance John Jones was holding something back against OSP so he can save the real beating for his old pussy, I mean buddy, Daniel Cormier? 
That is quite a theory. I will say I it, it made sense to me when I heard John Jones's remarks in the post-fight press conference when people were asking him, you know, what was going through his mind at different points in the the OSP fight, and he said, you know, it it might sound weird, but honestly, what was going through my mind was you got to just do what you got to do to get through, get this win, so you can fight Daniel Cormier again. That's clearly the fight he really cares about at this point, and the only one that seems to really get him hyped when he's talking about it. And it, I can believe that even when he thought he, maybe he could have finished OSP in, in certain situations in that fight, he thought, you know what? Don't do anything stupid here. Um, get your work in, get your win, and then move on to the real fight. Yeah, and like I said, my my thinking on it changed as as I watched the fight and and as you know stories began to emerge after the fight. But at first, I thought like he was taking his time on purpose because he wanted to get some ring time because it had been like sixteen months since he'd been in the cage. Uh, and then I guess now it just seems like. He was in there against OSP, who's a dangerous guy, but who was outclassed. And OSP wasn't doing a heck of a lot to push the pace. And I think that it's perfectly reasonable to think that John Jones would not want to take many chances. Although, I mean, I don't, I feel like it's unfair to even say that since he was out there throwing spinning head kicks and spinning elbows and whatever. But you could see how he would think he just wanted to get through this one to not squander that Daniel Cormier uh, rematch that's, that's coming up. In terms of like him not wanting to show what his game is or if his game has evolved since he's been gone, uh, John Jones has been in the UFC since 2008 and has been, you know, the best pound for pound fighter in the world uh, uh, since about like 2011, probably. Uh, I think it's different for Holly Holm, who only has like two fights in the UFC before she fights Ronda Rousey. I think we all know what John Jones is about, and I think we know what he's capable of. I don't know that it makes much sense for him to, uh, like, even if John Jones did have a bunch of new tricks uh, that he was just saving for Daniel Cormier, he's got enough old tricks that he could have busted them all out against OSP, uh, you know, and, and maybe made a more exciting fight. But again, like, I think we're dealing with a problem of perception here. I don't know that John Jones was boring. I don't know that he didn't take any chances. I just think that we expected more yeah. from having him back. Um, question here from Kyle Kelly Yoner. In the wake of many a hashtag lifestyle piece on the trials and tribulations of fighting, I'm left wondering how realistic fighters' ideas of retirement are and if we even know what a retired fighter looks like. Not everyone can have a Joe Rogan-endorsed podcast, sign movie deals with a Lifetime channel, or drop knowledge on a Fox broadcast, but it seems almost every fighter transitioning out of prize fighting wants a job that's fight-related in the public spotlight or both. What's the best-case scenario for these guys as you imagine it in your mind brains? Are there enough microphones and movie deals for everyone? This is a good question, and I also, I, I'm reminded periodically that we do not know as much about the life of the retired fighter and the life of the aging fighter uh, as we think we do because the sport's just not old enough for that yet. Like, we see guys like Mark Coleman, you know, trying to crowdfund a, a hip replacement surgery, that kind of stuff, and it, I think that stuff reminds you that, oh, yeah, well, we've been talking about this sport having a better safety record than some other sports. Maybe it's just that we have not yet had to ask ourselves what a 75-year-old MMA fighter looks like, you know, and how their situations, not just health-wise, but with finances and, and career stuff, how that's all going to work out over the as the years go by. And you're right. I mean, I hear it from a lot of fighters that they think, like, all right, I'm going to be, I'm basically going to join the commentariat. Right. 
and they can't all do that. Right. No, we, that's the one thing that we know for sure is that there aren't enough microphones and, and what was the other thing? Movie deals. Movie deals to go around. Uh, and I think that that's another reason why it speaks to the importance of, of fighters getting a fair cut of the proceeds just because, you know, you're not going to be a fighter for that long. Your, uh, your window to, to earn money is short, as the UFC will gladly tell you when there's a fight they're trying to get you to accept. Uh, and so I think, like, it's important that, that like in football and, and like in hockey, when these people get to the end of their relatively short athletic careers, they have a, a not to make a terrible pun, but a fighting chance moving forward. And, and you know, if you've spent your 20s and 30s as an MMA fighter and then you retire at 38 or 40 or whatever and you never got a college degree and, and you don't really have any plans for the future and you don't have any money, like, that's a tough place to be, especially when, since, like you said, all of our claims about this being a safer sport than boxing or a safer sport than, than any other contact sport are pretty theoretical at this point because we just don't have enough data to know whether or not that's true. And, like, if you're going to go out there and mortgage your future health, I feel like you deserve to come out the other end with some kind of nest egg that then at least it is up to you what you do with it. And, like, as you know, if you've watched the 30 for 30 broke – like lots of professional football players, professional baseball players, professional basketball players end up with no money too. But like, at least they had it at one point. We're talking <laughs> right. about a dude like Mark Coleman who gave the best years of his life to this sport. And now from all reports is kind of struggling. And like, that's, you know, that, that's not like necessarily him mismanaging his finances. He just came through a sport that didn't pay him no money. Well, yeah. And also, I mean, there's the, Guys who went through the NFL or the NBA and then blow all their money when the, you know, they still have some other revenue streams thanks to having players associations that UFC fighters don't have. And, you know, you if you're that fighter who you started this when you're 23 and you fought in the UFC for seven years, which would be a really good run. Uh, and then you dropped out of it and you had to retire by your, your late 30s after bouncing around some smaller organizations. The UFC might be out there still playing your old fights, uh, selling video games with your likeness on them, all that kind of stuff. And you're not seeing any money from that kind of thing. Um, so there are the, there are plenty of opportunities to or areas where that stuff should be addressed. And it, it would get addressed if the fighters could actually get together and form some kind of association, which they have in the Conor, wake of the Conor McGregor thing have shown that they have obvious roadblocks in their mentality uh, when it comes to doing all that kind of stuff. But even if you were, like you said, I, even if you were a fighter who got a college degree and then you went into this and you did this uh, until you're in your mid or late thirties and you retired, Matt Mitrione, I thought made a good point when he said, Hey, yeah, I got a college degree and the stuff I learned in college, like if you graduated from college in 2000, there's a lot of stuff, depending on your career field, there's probably a lot of stuff that you learn that's just kind of irrelevant now and that will not serve you well. And especially if when you go to show them your work history, when you're trying to apply for a job, all you have on there is cage fighter. It doesn't really matter that much if you had the college degree. And that's what Brian Stan said prompted. One of the main things that prompted his retirement was realizing I'm not going to make enough money on this to live. So I'm going to have to have another career and I should probably get started sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, at this point in the in the industry, it seems like you do need to have another career. You need to be like Shane Carwin, if you can be, right? You need to like, not necessarily that everyone is going to be like a petroleum engineer or whatever Shane Carwin is. I think he's is. a hydraulic engineer. Yeah, but in the like oil industry, right? Like he, he went to, uh, didn't he go to Colorado School of Mines? Yes, or, he did, Or yeah. University of Northern Colorado and, and uh, is now, you know, works in some kind of oil-related engineering job. And not that everyone can do that too, but like, it does seem like guys who have that other career, whatever it is, even if it's like a, a fleet of successful coin-operated car washes, uh, have an easier time transitioning away from the sport. But that's also a super sad commentary and like kind of uh, reinforces how many different things about this industry are still kind of fucked up because like, yeah, you have to have another career, but show up ready to fight 25 minutes or we will absolutely flay you in the court of public opinion for being fat and, and like not not a professional and all this other stuff, but also be a petroleum engineer. Well, and you also better be able to take time off from your fleet of coin-operated car washes to come do press conferences in Stockton and New York and all over the place. That's the thing, man. You just roll by and and clean out the machines once a week. That's why it's the perfect career. You're really selling this to me. I think we should do this. (laughs) This question comes from Mike Robertson. He writes, Could I request the resurrection of the tips for the well-rounded fight fan section? I just finished a book, 112263, by Stephen King, which he comments four stars, and any tips for my next book would be greatly received. Received. As a married man with children, I can't imagine that your tips are received with relish all that often. Whoa. 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 I see what you did there. So Is I'm sure you'll rise to the to occasion. say that no one will sleep with us? Is that what he's trying to say? Incorrect. I have two children. I have had sex <laughs> upwards of two times before. And I have proof. Uh, let's do tips for the well-rounded fight fan. You got anything you want to you lay out there? I don't have any books. But, uh, and Ben, you and I talked about this uh, in private that... Uh, Amazon signed us both up for Amazon Prime without telling us. Yeah, that was nice. Which turned out to be a brilliant gambit on their part because after they signed me up for Prime and I found out about it and I was like, after that moment when I was like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) The next thing I thought was, I guess I'll go see what I can watch on Amazon streaming. Uh, And so I have two tips for the well-rounded fight fan that are both available on Amazon streaming if you have them. First, the uh, comedy show Catastrophe, which I might have mentioned on the show before, but uh, it's from England. Super funny. The seasons are really short. It doesn't take that long to watch. Uh, You should check that out. And also, my wife and I have been watching The Americans, which has been around for a long time now and is a show on AMC or no, uh, uh, FX. Uh, and I had just never checked it out before. There are three seasons of it available on Amazon Prime streaming. Woo, and it is good. It is hot fire, that show, The Americans. Wow. I recommend it highly. Such enthusiasm. A lot of sex in it. Okay. I like that about it because I'm not having any sex, as Mike Robertson points out. <laughs> uh, all right. That's, I... not, that's not true. That last part wasn't true, you guys. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned that I took up one of your tips, the All the Light We Cannot See, oh, which, yeah. which was a great tip. Uh, and if people haven't read that and you like long-ass books that are actually totally fucking brilliant, then uh, you should definitely check that one out. But I have a, a book recommendation. I'm actually writing a thing right now, a kind of uh, article version of Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan. I might even just straight up call it Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan. Um Wait, where is this going to be published? On, on, on MMA Co- Junkie. CoMainEvent.com? Uh, we will sue your ass. I can't actually call it Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan because I'm probably only going to do it once. But uh, the book Black Ajax, mm. uh, which is a work of historical fiction by Gregory McDonald Fraser, who's the guy who wrote the Flashman novels, which I think I've also recommended on Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan. And it's about real-life uh, 
former slave turned bare knuckle boxer uh, Tom Molyneux, who uh, was a slave in the U.S. was uh, and basically involved in bare knuckle boxing matches against other slaves, a la Django Unchained uh, kind of situation, and was freed after winning a large sum of money for his owner. Went to to England, where the bare knuckle boxing scene was big in the early 19th century, uh, and wanted to fight the champion of England, Tom Cribb. And the story is incredible. It's really well done. The, the, the structure of the novel is really interesting. And the thing that struck me is you're reading a book, I believe written in the late 90s, about a 19th century bare-knuckle boxing. And there are so many things about it that remind you of MMA, the way the MMA industry works in the present day. It, the, the game just don't change all that much when you really think about it. Uh, some of its, you know, base elements to it. Uh, and it's just a fantastic book in general. Yeah, I actually want to read that one. Also, a fun fact, the first belt given as a prize for accomplishments within the ring was presented in 1810 by King George III to the winner of the bare knuckle boxing match between between Tom Cribb and Tom Molyneux. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. And there's also a uh, famous painting, Boxeur's, uh, or etching, maybe I believe it is, uh, by uh, Theodore Jericho, uh, and it, I think it's of Tom Molyneux and Tom Cribb engaged in a bare knuckle box. The one thing you do have to put up with is you have to learn an entirely new lexicon because not only is it British, and it's also old timey, and so it's like you have to really be able to figure out what it means when somebody gets fibbed on the knob. Uh, and uh, you'll pick it up though, and it's pretty great. All right. Well, you know what? That we're gonna have to probably leave it there. Uh, that's gonna do it for this week's uh, edition of the co-main event podcast. Uh, we'll decide what we're doing next week if we want to come in and, and test everybody's theories about how we should record the damn podcast on Wednesday anyway, uh, or if we just want to let it ride till the following week. Either way, we know you'll be cool with it because you are the best fans in the world. Even if you don't even watch the sport anymore. As for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. So, how much startup capital do you think we're going to need for this coin operating carbon? I think what we got to do is, first of all, 